0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotron.com/agony. slash agony. All right, well, I'm going to um, read today from the very beginning of my new book, Adaptation. I'll begin with the epigraph, which is from Charles Darwin's The Origin of Species. The slightest advantage in certain individuals at any age or during any season over those with which they come into competition or better adaptation in however slight a degree to the surrounding physical conditions will in the long run turn the balance chapter one. The birds plummeted to the tarmac, wings loose and limp. They struck the ground with such force that their bodies smashed into dark slicks on the concrete. What the? Reese Holloway pushed herself out of the hard plastic seat facing the floor-to-ceiling windows. Outside, heat waves rippled over the oil-stained runway. She glanced back at David, her forehead wrinkled. Did you see that? David Lee looked up from his book. See what? His dark brown eyes reflected the hard, bright daylight in tiny dots of white. Reese tried to swallow the flutter of self-consciousness that rose within her as David met her gaze. She pointed at the windows. These birds just fell dead from the sky. David's eyebrows rose. No way. Yeah. David closed the book over his right index finger and stood. Where? His shoulder brushed against her as he joined her at the windows. She took a tiny step away and said, Over there by those two workers. A man in a blue jumpsuit pulled up in a baggage cart while another man in an orange vest ran toward him. You mean that dark stuff on the ground? Those are birds? Were birds. Damn. Blue jumpsuit was gesticulating at the sky and the remains on the ground, apparently explaining the bird's fatal descent to orange vest. That was bizarre, Reese said. The unforgiving glare of the sun on the neon orange vest and the glistening lumps on the concrete gave the scene a surreal cast, like overexposed film. Have you ever seen birds just crash to the ground like that? No, David said. Reese watched Blue Jumpsuit pull a plastic bag from a container on the baggage cart. He stuck his hand in the bag and squatted down to pick up the remains, as if he were cleaning up after a dog. David went back to his seat, but Reese remained standing until the birds were removed, leaving only a smudge on the pavement, the stamp of their final moments. When she sat down again, she felt unsettled, as if the ordinary world had been knocked off balance and everything was now listing slightly to one side. Beside her, David had returned to his book, and she saw the title angling across the cover in a retro-futuristic font, The Left Hand of Darkness. She glanced at her watch, Their plane to San Francisco had been delayed, but it was due to take off, finally, in an hour. The waiting had made her twitchy and her leg bounced with nervous energy. She bent down to pull out her iPod from her backpack, and as she fitted the headphones into her ears, she surreptitiously watched David turn a page. He was wearing a short-sleeved shirt and the skin of his arm had a golden tone, like the sunlight during Indian summer. She took a shallow breath and forced herself to look at her iPod scrolling through her music, But as the song titles rolled past, she wasn't paying attention. David was her debate partner. They had both joined the debate team at Kennedy High School their freshman year, but it wasn't until junior year, last fall, that their coach, Joe Chapman, suggested they might work well together. And they did. They worked so well together that they qualified for nationals. When Reese's mom found out, she was ecstatic. She even wanted to fly to Phoenix with them for the tournament, But her case ended up going to court during nationals. She was an assistant district attorney in San Francisco, so only Mr. Chapman had come with them. Reese was glad because she would have been even more embarrassed if her mom had been there to watch her lose. Afterward, Reese had called her from the locker-lined hallway behind the auditorium to tell her the bad news. Her mom tried to comfort her. You can't win them all, honey. Now, in the airport as she sat beside David, the memory of that day Was it only yesterday? And all of its disappointments surged up again, slamming into the off-kilter tension that gripped her after witnessing the demise of those birds. Get a grip on yourself, she thought. I'm going to walk around, Reese said abruptly to David. Will you watch my stuff? David nodded and she stood, dropping her iPod back into her backpack on the floor. She saw Mr. Chapman threading his way through the seats toward them, carrying two bottles of water. He waved at her and she waved back as she walked toward the center of the concourse. This trip could not be over soon enough. Reese walked past the podium where a blue and white uniformed flight attendant was dealing with a line of five or six travelers. A harassed-looking mother herded two toddlers forward while dragging a suitcase and pushing a stroller. Reese was trying to avoid the stroller, her sneakers squeaking across the glossy floor when she heard someone scream, Oh my God! She turned to see a woman standing up, hands over her mouth and staring at the flat screen TV hanging from the ceiling. The news was on as usual and the Asian American anchor woman had a hand pressed to her ear as if she were listening to a feed. Her face was grim. Reese took a few steps closer until she could read the headline at the bottom of the screen. Plane crash in New Jersey kills all passengers. Reese gasped. The anger woman lowered her hand from her ear and said, We have confirmed reports that an Airbus A320 has crashed outside Newark Airport. The cause of the crash has not yet been determined, but eyewitnesses have reported that the plane collided with a flock of Canada geese during takeoff. While airplanes are designed to withstand isolated bird strikes, apparently this was an entire flock. More than a dozen birds in all. A jolt went through Reese. Birds? In her mind's eye, she saw the birds plunge to the tarmac again. Other travelers began to gather beneath the TV screen while the anchorwoman repeated the bare facts. The plane had burst into flames when its fuel tanks exploded upon impact. 146 passengers were presumed dead. Emergency crew on the scene were hoping to salvage some clues from the burning mess. This is crazy, said a middle-aged woman standing near Reese. Those poor people. What is this about birds, said a man in a Red Sox cap. How could birds do this? The anchor woman interrupted her own report, saying, We have news of a second crash, this time in the Pacific Northwest. A Boeing 747 has crashed onto the coast near Seattle. The anchor woman pressed her hand to her ear again. Information is still coming in. We do not know if there are any survivors of this second plane crash. Her face stiffened, and she stopped speaking for a moment. Finally, she lowered her hand and looked into the camera. Early reports indicate that this plane was struck by birds. Reese gaped at the television as a collective gasp arose from the travelers around her. We have Lamont Bell on the line from the Federal Aviation Administration, the woman said. Mr. Bell, what is the chance of two planes being downed by bird strikes within an hour? The man's voice sounded scratchy over the audio transmission, but it was clear that he was unnerved. It's not. It's very unusual. I've never in my entire career encountered two plane crashes of such magnitude due to bird strikes. Are you saying that you believe the planes crashed due to a different, unnatural cause? I, no, I'm not saying that. I don't know what caused the crashes. We shouldn't speculate. Eyewitness accounts indicate the presence of large flocks of birds. Is it impossible that the plane crashes were due to bird strikes? No, it's not impossible, but it's unlikely. Do you think something else is part of the equation? I don't know, Bell said, sounding exasperated. Look, I don't want to speculate. Mr. Bell, I'm afraid I have to interrupt you again, the anchorwoman said. I've just received news that there has been a third crash, this time in Texas. Once again, reports do indicate that bird strikes may have been the cause of the crash, and she stopped speaking, turning to look off camera. Someone off screen handed her a sheet of paper, and when she faced the camera again, she read directly from it. I've been informed that the FAA has grounded all aircraft in the United States while officials assess the threat level posed by these accidents. She looked into the camera. I'm afraid we have some bad news for travelers today. I repeat, the Federal Aviation Administration has grounded all aircraft in the United States. Reese's stomach dropped and the crowd around the TV monitor erupted with questions. What do you mean? Is my flight canceled? This is bullshit. What is going on? How could birds possibly do this? That's insane. It must be terrorists. But terrorists can't control birds. As the questions piled one on top of another, louder and louder, Reese's heart began to race. The birds that had smashed onto the runway, three plane crashes, three. One is unusual. Two is a coincidence, but three, how could it be an accident? People were bumping into her, craning their necks at the TV, taking over the anchorwoman, talking over the anchorwoman. Reese shoved her way out of the crowd, her skin crawling as disbelief warred with growing panic inside her. What is going on? She halted in front of a bank of monitors displaying the flight departure times. One by one, those times blinked out and were replaced by a single word, repeated over and over, canceled. So I'm going to skip chapter two and read a bit from chapter three. What happens is the teenagers and their coach decide to rent a car to drive home to San Francisco. And while they're on the freeway, they realize that something is wrong because there's so much traffic. Everybody is driving everywhere. Their car is just packed full of suitcases and supplies. And she can't figure out what's going on because, of course, cell phone reception is really bad. By the time they made it out of the airport, driving one of the last available rentals, a Suzuki sedan with a long dent in the driver's side door. It was nearly morning, and Reese's hunger had settled into a gnawing hollowness that made her both tired and cranky. Mr. Chapman eased the sedan into the line of cars, waiting to get onto the I-10 as the horizon turned gray, then pink. David, sitting in the front passenger seat, scanned through the radio stations one by one, but none of them was reporting any news, not even traffic, which was moving in a crawl. It took an hour to go seven miles. As they inched their way onto the I-10, Mr. Chapman said, David, look at that map they gave us and find me another way to San Francisco. If it's this bad around Phoenix, I don't want to take it all the way to L.A. It's just going to be worse there. Reese slouched in the back seat, checking her phone every few minutes for reception. She hadn't been able to get a call through to her mom, and the stress that had been tightening her neck all night was starting to make her head pound, Outside on the freeway, it was practically a parking lot. A Toyota nearby contained a man and a woman and what appeared to be mounds of supplies. Canned goods, toilet paper, blankets. A white VW that kept trying to cut them off was packed with five passengers, and the trunk was tied down over piles of suitcases. There were way too many people on the freeway for it to only be rush hour traffic, and Reese couldn't shake the feeling that she was missing something. What was driving these people out of their houses at the crack of dawn? So they continued to drive. (laughs) They're heading toward uh, Las Vegas. Arizona, Reese soon discovered, was one giant sprawl of desert, at least on either side of the highway. In the distance, mountains lent a jagged edge to the horizon, but they were so far away that they seemed like a mirage. The reality here was flat dirt, a light brown broken by occasional bushes that clung obstinately to their patches of ground and were permanently bent by the dry wind. On the road, as far as the eye could see, was traffic. As the day wore on, Reese saw more and more cars packed full of gear, tents strapped to the roof, blankets and pillows piled high in back seats. She increasingly felt as if they had joined a tide of refugees, only she didn't know what they were fleeing from. At a Texaco just outside Phoenix, a man in a rumpled suit eyed her as she grabbed the last box of Hostess donuts, as if he wanted to take it from her. She hurried to meet up with Mr. Chapman and David at the cash register, hunching her shoulders defensively. It was hard not to be affected by the sense of paranoia that seemed to infect her fellow passengers, her fellow travelers. Even the gas station attendants who took their money had developed a kind of squinty-eyed anxiety. If she could only get some real information, Reese thought, she wouldn't be so on edge. But the AM radio had long since faded to constant static, The only FM station that came in was playing old country music, and she still couldn't get online or on her phone. At least she had managed to talk to her mom for a minute before the connection broke, but there hadn't been time to do more than say that they had left Phoenix. Now all Reese had was the view out the window, and it didn't tell her anything except she was glad she didn't live in a desert. Mm -hmm. They reached Kingman at noon after a long morning of stop and start driving. They intended to take the exit onto I-40, heading west toward California. But a few miles before they reached the interchange, traffic slowed even more. What the hell is going on, Mr. Chapman said in frustration. He had drunk three cups of awful black coffee that morning, and Reese was beginning to wonder if she or David should take over the driving. Mr. Chapman was jittery and nervous from the caffeine and sugar and hadn't slept any more than the two of them. Half a mile before they reached the exit, Reese saw what was holding things up a roadblock. A string of state police cars was parked right across the ramp to the I-40, their red and blue lights flashing beneath the hot midday sun. State troopers in khaki uniforms waved them past. Mr. Chapman rolled down his window as they neared the roadblock and heat blasted into the car. What's going on? he called. We have to get onto 40 West to get back to California. One of the troopers took a step closer to them, looking down through his sunglasses. You'll have to drive up to Las Vegas and find an alternate route. Interstate 40 is closed here. Closed? Why? It's closed, the trooper repeated. You'll have to drive north to Las Vegas. Mr. Chapman stared at him, wrinkling his forehead. Move on, sir. You're blocking traffic. Are you serious? Mr. Chapman asked. That's a four-hour detour. Then you'd better get started. The trooper's hand moved to the weapon at his hip. For a moment, Mr. Chapman didn't move and Reese's mouth went dry. What could you do when faced with a state trooper who had a gun? Mr. Chapman rolled up the window and drove on, cursing under his breath. Sorry, he muttered. This is crazy. They reached the outskirts of Las Vegas in late afternoon. Traffic picked up as they approached the city and Reese hoped it meant that the worst was behind them, The map they had gotten at the rental car counter didn't extend as far as Las Vegas, so at a Chevron off the freeway, Mr. Chapman climbed out to refill the tank and buy a map. He left the nozzle in the tank as he walked toward the mini-mart, and Reese unbuckled her seatbelt and stretched out her legs in the back seat. David was studying his phone, and she asked, Any reception? He shook his head. I don't know what's up. Circuits are overloaded or something, and my battery's dying anyway. Reese took out her own phone and saw the battery indicator was at 50%. Crap, mine too. We should have charged them last night when we were in line. Her phone charger was in her carry-on in the trunk, but without an adapter to plug into the car, it was useless. I'm going to turn mine off for now. She looked up as Mr. Chapman returned from the Minimart, waving a map triumphantly. He headed back to the pump, tucking the map in his back pocket. Do you think we should stay in Vegas tonight? she asked. She was tired. The nervous energy that had kept her alert all day was fading now that they had arrived in Las Vegas, and her lack of sleep was catching up with her. I guess it's up to Mr. C, David said. I can help drive. Do you have your license? Yeah. Reese heard a stranger's voice outside the window, and she twisted around to see a burly man in an army green vest, his muscles bulging out of a black t-shirt gesturing at Mr. Chapman. He was backing away from the gas pump, hands raised, face white the man in the khaki vest was pointing a gun at him. The shock of recognizing the weapon was like having a bucket of ice water dumped over her head. The man shouted, give me your keys now. Reese scrambled away from the window, her heart slamming into her throat. Chapman was visibly shaking. They're in the car, he said, but the man didn't even glance inside the sedan. He pulled the trigger. The gunshot was so loud that everything Reese heard afterwards seemed dull, as if it were coming at her from underwater. David was saying, shit, shit, shit. Mr. Chapman was on the ground. He had no face anymore. She couldn't drag her gaze away. It was nothing like the movies. The lifeless weight of Mr. Chapman's body, the utter stillness of it, could never be replicated on film. Her stomach heaved. The gunman turned to look inside the car. Reese saw a snake tattoo writhing up the man's thick, sweat-soaked neck. Fear crashed through her in a frigid rush. She yelled, David, get out of the car, the man screamed at them, pointing the gun at the window. David, lock the doors. David scrambled into the driver's seat, lunging for the door lock. They engaged with a thunk seconds before the man reached for the passenger's side door handle. He snarled when the door wouldn't open. David fumbled with the keys that were still in the ignition. The engine roared to life. The man raised the gun again, pointing it at the handle. David floored the gas pedal, and Reese was thrown back hard against the seat as the car jerked forward. They heard a loud clank as the gas nozzle was yanked out of the tank, the hose snapping. There was a second gunshot, and Reese instinctually ducked down in the seat. The car bounced over a bump in the road so high, she was sure David had just just driven over a curb. She heard a horn blasting as the car turned sharply, throwing her onto the floor. The tires screeched. She heard another gunshot popping like a firecracker and then a giant boom. What the hell was that? Reese was crouched on the floor of the car, the hair on her arm standing up as if she had stuck her finger in an electrical socket. She felt as if she was about to throw up. Jesus Christ, David breathed, sounding stunned. What happened? The freaking gas station blew up! Heart-pounding, Reese pushed herself up to peer out the rear window. She saw the dangling end of a gasoline hose spitting fire. The pump where they had been parked was engulfed in flame and fire licked across the oil-sloped concrete. People were running away from the inferno, abandoning their cars. She could no longer see Mr. Chapman's body or the man who had shot him. Wow. (laughs)